Welcome to Twill and another COVID-19 law and policy briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you also to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Section. For more information on the COVID legal response, please check our report, Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19. In the report, 50 national experts assess the U.S. policy response and provide recommendations on how federal, state, and local leaders can better respond to COVID-19 as well as to future pandemics. You can find volume one of our assessment at covid19policyplaybook.org, and we are hard at work on volume two, which will be published in the early spring. If you want to react to this broadcast, please use the hashtag COVIDLawBriefing, uh, post your questions or comments. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law. Joining me today are Brian Castrucci, President and Chief Executive of the De Beaumont Foundation, Timothy Cofield, Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy at the University of Alberta, and my co-host and one of my illustrious co-editors on the Legal Assessment Project I just mentioned is Wendy Parmet, the Matthews Distinguished University Professor of Law at Northeastern University. Welcome, everybody. We are living through a time of extraordinary misinformation. Uh, the Washington Post final tally of the prior president's full-storm misleading claims was 30,573 over four years. During the first post-truth pandemic, conspiracy and other theories blossomed on social media, while outright lies, misinformation, and everything in between have tainted our usual trusted sources, such as pivotal public health agencies like the CDC as it battled the White House under the prior administration. Today, as we find hope in the new vaccines, we hear stories of new alliances between anti-vaccine activists and anti-mask advocates to pursue what they call, quote, health freedom. So our topic today is how, in the context of public health responses to COVID-19, do we address this misinformation phenomenon? So thank you, Nick. Um, And I just want to start with a question for you, Brian. In some of my own work on the post-truth pandemic, um, which some of us have been calling COVID-19, I've come to believe that we're not simply dealing with this misinformation. Indeed, misinformation about public health issues goes back to the beginning, right? But what seems different now is that the misinformation is accompanied by, first, a loss of trust in public health in expertise in general, And second, a loss of feeling among many that they don't need to give credence to experts. Um, It's just as good to get your information from your friends or your Facebook friends or who knows who. And indeed, maybe that there's no truth at all. It's like, you know, if if you like someone and they tell you it, it's fine. Or if it feels good, it's fine, right? There's less of a feeling that we need to care about whether something is true or founded on science. 
students. So I'm wondering, given your work and the work of the Development Foundation on this, whether you could respond to that, what have you found about loss of trust in public health, um, loss of belief that facts matter, and what might this mean for vaccine updates? So I've kind of snuck three questions in there at once. A lot to unpack there, Wendy. Um, So let me just start with the idea that even saying that there's a misinformation pandemic expresses a point of view. It's, It's a point of view that I agree with. I think there is misinformation out there, but I don't think this is about not believing in science. I think it's about finding the scientist that you can believe in. And so Scott Atlas wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed that talked about um, all of the misinformation. Now, from my point of view, he is the source of a lot of that misinformation. So this is the hard part. It's it's not that there's, it's, it's your truth is a truth and my truth is a truth. And the fact that we both believe that we are on sound scientific ground is what makes this all the more challenging, right? And it's, it's an, an example of just how tribal we have become. I, I came upon an interesting data point recently that said, well, we have fewer close friends now than we did, you know, in the late 90s. And what that means is there aren't as many opportunities for us to exchange ideas. And so we're all just hearing and living in the echo chamber. Uh, I think there was a poll that Frank Luntz did that showed around 90% of people who listen to um, CNN or MSNBC voted for Biden. And about 90% of those people who listen to Fox voted for Trump. And so we're not even getting news or information anymore. We're just getting a reflection of, of what we want to hear, right? I mean, we we all know, those of us who've worked in kind of anti-vax spaces, it's not that the anti-vaxxers don't believe in science. It's that they have found science that they believe in that contradicts ours. And then we say things like, well, ours is peer-reviewed, and the beauty of conspiracy theories is their lack of truth is somewhat reaffirming. Well, of course, we can't get our anti-vax studies into your journal. And so it just perpetuates a divide. And then, you know, layering onto this a general mistrust of government makes kind of everything that we, every tool that we've ever had in our toolbox is kind of outdated right now. And we're doing, you know, we're trying to do a lot of the, the vaccine confidence work right now. And, and we're so far behind the eight ball, it's not even funny because we needed to do vaccine confidence. We needed to engage marginalized communities decades before now, right? And you, you can't you can't build resilience while the house burns, right? And that's our challenge right now. And I think it's become extraordinarily limiting to our kind of uh, public health effort because when would we have, when would we have ever thought that we would we would be debating whether masks work, right? That's the debate, or, or even better, that COVID is even real. You know, imagine going back to the HIV epidemic. What if people, you know, if there was a large swath of people who had a large platform who were saying HIV is not real, condoms don't work. You know, it would have just hamstrung us amazingly. And it didn't help, of course, that much of this came like from the president of the United States. So, or fortunately, the former president of the United States. So this is all this kind of cauldron of challenge that we're trying to confront. And I, I don't know that we have an easy answer right now. Maybe I, I agree. I don't think there's an easy answer. We are in very um, difficult situation right now. But maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, if there's one or two things that folks in the public health community could do, um, recognizing that maybe we're in some sense we're decades late right now. Um, what would you advise? I think right now I'm, I'm so proud of those health officials who have used social media to engage the broader public. Trust is built upon multiple interact, right? Person to person. And we need more of that. We need folks going on Instagram Live and Facebook Live and taking questions. We also have to really work on our communication skills. When the when the 
pandemic started, we had 3,000 health departments doing their own messaging. It, where was the set of messages? You know, don't, hey, every time you hear lockdown, correct people and say stay at home order. We needed better messaging. You know, this is why Trump works. Trump worked because he had nice little pithy slogans, right? Lock her up, um, stop the steal. I mean, he's like a master of alliteration and we just don't communicate that way. And maybe we need to start, you know, it's we want to open sooner, safer, but we never got those messages out. And so right now, um, the CDC Foundation, De Beaumont and Trust for America's Health have stood up uh, the Public Health Communications Collaborative. And there's a, a whole bunch of great resources. You can find it at um, publichealthcollaborative.org. And there's a whole section on misinformation. It tells you whether you should ignore it or address it. And then it gives you the messaging to address the misinformation. And, and sometimes it's going to be just ignore it, right? If someone tells you two plus two is seven, how long are you going to spend debating that with them? You're going to say, no, it's four. And you're going to move on. And I think sometimes we have to do more of that. I think getting, you know, drug into Twitter wars over mask wearing is not in our best interest. So Tim, Brian talked about Fox News, sort of the bete noir from, from, from our side of the fence, I guess. You've looked closely at misinformation on social media, everything from simple lies by politicians to extraordinary conspiracy theories. Please don't mention lasers. What are some of your findings? And in particular, you've written on what you call debunking or counter messaging. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, which I think is uh, consistent with where Brian left off. Yeah, I, I, I loved what Brian said. I, my head was nodding over all the last the last little bit of, of his statements. You know, he's absolutely correct uh, what the evidence says. Let's start with the good news, you know, because it can, it can seem incredibly frustrating. But there is a consistent body of evidence that shows that debunking does work. Now, look, some, a lot of people don't like the term debunking, and I, and I get that. It feels very unilateral. It doesn't really feel like engagement, and you do need to engage in a meaningful way. But but let's put it this way. Countering misinformation, if you do it well, can have an impact. And when you're talking about can have an impact, we're talking about doing this on a population level. We have to measure these kinds of uh, th this kind of impact by looking at how it in impacts the broader discussion. And and it does work. And there have you know, been meta-analysis of it. There's been, you know, I did a, a literature review this summer, uh, came to the same conclusion. Uh, it's pretty consistent. Uh, the other thing I think is really important to highlight is this concern about the backfire effect. I'm sure you guys have heard this a lot, or the boomerang effect. The idea is that it's not worth debunking because people just become more entrenched in their views. And, and while I, it's, that's not a myth, I think we need to be careful not to overplay that concern. I always say, at a minimum, concern of the backfire effect should not dissuade you from, from countering misinformation. Most of the evidence around the backfire effect either has found that it doesn't exist, or it's very context-specific, or that it's rare. So go forth and debunk, uh, but do it do it well. And the other thing that Brian says that I, I totally agree with, uh, you know, I do a lot of this myself, is do not get dragged into uh, an argument with a hardcore denier. Uh, the evidence, again, pretty consistent, very difficult to change their minds. But what you can do is use those encounters as an opportunity to talk to, to the general public. And I love what Brian said about how public, you know, the good, again, more good news. The good news is we are seeing public health of, uh, officials, clinicians, uh, we're seeing scientists, you know, more and more people becoming part of this public discussion. I think that's exactly what we need. So if, if you look at the body of evidence that's out there, uh, debunking can work. We've got to get on social media. We've got to do it in a constructive way. You know, I always argue that you also want to be empathetic. You want to be nice. Um, you want to be humble. In fact, the literature is, is mixed around how important that kind of tone is. Um, but I think if you want to serve a long-term engagement with an audience and you want that audience to trust you, 
those elements are also those elements are also important. And the other thing that that we need to do is we got to use those same creative strategies that that the uh, that the debunk or, or that the de- deniers have been using. So we got to use narrative. You know, we've got to use uh, these really kind of impressive YouTube clips. Uh, we've got to use humor. We've got to use images. We have to use all those same strategies uh, to get across the good message. And all of that stuff, you guys, all that stuff has to be shareable on all the platforms. So we're talking TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. We've got to get the message out on all those all those uh, platforms. Now, it may not feel like we're making a big, a big difference, but number one, the evidence says we are making a difference. And number two, think what it would be like if we weren't doing that. <laughs> it would just be even worse than it is now. So I think the evidence suggests we can counter misinformation. It's an ongoing battle, but let's not get discouraged. So how would you assess the potential for counter messaging against some of the other tools that sometimes people talk about when it comes to social media and misinformation? Um, Private regulation by big tech. I mean, pulling Trump off Twitter apparently led to a huge uh, decline in the amount of misinformation being trafficked. Um, There is continual talk of governmental regulation of big tech. We even have litigation. If you think of the uh, Dominion uh, voting, uh, bringing these defamation suits. Where do you stand on sort of that package of sort of self or private or public regulation? Well, I I think that we need to come at the issue of misinformation with a range of tools. You know, obviously, this is a complex social phenomenon. We're going to have to come at it using a a range of tools over a long period of time. But but I do think, obviously, we've got to do something about the social media platform. Um, You know, best case scenario in my dream, and this is just a thought experiment, and I'm sure your community has thought about this too, you would have an independent oversight committee uh, at an international level that <laughs> that dealt with these these platforms. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. So then we have to remind ourselves what we're asking. We're asking private actors to self-police, right? To decide what we are, what we can and can't see. That's a big ask. And it does have really interesting implications for liberal democracies, right? But, but in the aggregate, in the aggregate right now, those kinds of moves seem logical and they're, they're having, they're having an impact. But I think this is going to, and I'm sure your community has talked a lot about this. This is going to be one of the big policy questions, I think, over the coming decades, you know, how do we police, how do we regulate these these platforms? I don't think there, there's an easy answer. Now, having said all that, we also need the FTC to do more. We need the FDA to do more. We need uh, professional regulators to do more because a lot of these people spreading this information are, are regulated professionals. So we need to come at this from absolutely every direction. Uh, but I, I think the big question, you know, the freedom of uh, oppression issues, you know, in Canada, as well as the United States, these are, these are really challenging legal questions that, you know, I don't have a short answer for you. Brian, I want to go back to uh, some of the work that your foundation has done. Um, And really, you know, your work on the language of vaccines. And if you talk a little bit, and maybe you can draw in some of uh, Tim's, Timothy's comments, (laughs) what might work for different populations, right? So it's an exceptionally complicated problem and challenging, as Timothy said, but it's also potentially a different, right? We have different audiences, how do we um, message to different groups, particularly around vaccine, and control the messaging and regulate the messaging to different groups, particularly around vaccines? So we have some tips, but I want to I just go back to something Timothy said real quick. Um, I do find it really interesting on social platforms when physicians wearing their white coat, identifying as physicians, tell us things that are wrong. I thought the Hippocratic Oath said, first, do no harm, and I'd strip their license. There's a controversial topic for a future 
future future conversation maybe. But I mean, if you're if you're a physician and I go to see you and you say to me, "Oh, Brian, you have you know stage four cancer," you can solve that by rubbing lemons on your chest. We would strip that person of their ability to practice medicine. The fact that they're doing it on a broad platform, um, and you know, in the U.S., we you know we subsidize residency, and so the public there's a public interest here. And so I thought it was interesting when you mentioned you know regulatory boards, and so I'm I'm kind of in great agreement with you there. When it comes to our messaging, there are just some really key tips. Um, the first thing we have to do is keep our messages positive, right? Public health. I mean, you know, you spend your whole first year of MPH school kind of learning how to do this and just finger wag at everybody. And, and we got to stop that, right? It, it's, we got to have conversations and meet people where they are. We need to put the finger away and talk about what, what we can get out of taking the vaccine. You know, don't just talk to people about the awfulness of not doing it. This is how you're going to keep your family safe. This is how we're going to get back to normal. This is how we're going to get the economy going again. And those messages, you know, resonate differently with different groups, but you know, ultimately, everyone wants to hear a positive message. I think that that's really important. Um, talk about the people behind the vaccine, that this was an unprecedented collaboration of medical researchers. Make sure that we're saying to everybody um, that no, there were no s- steps skipped here. This wasn't a vaccine that skipped, you know, phase two and phase three and went right to the public. Let's be really clear. Let's, you know, the hard part about misinformation is that we're limited when someone who is providing misinformation is totally free to say whatever they want. So we have to get like really super good with our core messages because we can't make things up. You know, know, COVID came from bees infected at Chernobyl and, you know, released by the left, right? We're not going to make that stuff up. So we have to just be really clear. Here was the science. These, these, the FDA was involved at every step and hit that every, you know, every trial, every vaccine we've, we've been there. Okay, I think that's super important. Um, let's stop using the word vaccine hesitant. Hesitant in and of itself is somewhat negative. So let's talk about people who are concerned or skeptical, because then you can open up a conversation, right? Um, I, I understand you have concerns about the vaccine. What questions can I answer for you? And it opens up conversation instead of, again, putting us into our tribe, the hesitant and the non-hesitant. That's tribal. You're concerned. Of course you're concerned. It's a new vaccine, right? Let's talk about it. Um, and again, I think those are the tips that, that that will help us all communicate better with each other. Um, I hope that every employer out there is creating some safe spaces where people can ask questions. We're going to have to do a much better job of anticipating the messaging need of our public health leaders. Um, you take, for example, this was brought up to me yesterday, and I, I had never thought of this. We're going to, when the J and J vaccine uh, is available, well, that's only seventy-ish, sixty-ish percent effective. So who's taken the 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 you know the runner-up vaccine? Who's taken the crappy vaccine? I don't want that one. You know, oh, oh, here in my rural community, I'm only getting this Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Oh, I guess we're not going to get the good vaccine. Can you hear that narrative already developing? We need messaging. It needs to be consistent. And we need to get it out to our public health, public health practitioners so they can combat those narratives. So as well as the message, there's also the question of the messenger. And we know that people are thinking hard, for example, about who are the right messengers to use to, um, to talk about vaccines with with um, populations that, for example, have for historic, for good historical reasons, do not trust uh, the healthcare system and so on. So, Brian, you talked a little bit earlier about some collaboratives you were involved in. And, and Tim, you're part of a very impressive collaborative between scientists, social scientists, and lawyers providing ways to help people in Canada to work against misinformation. Can you tell us about this group, which I think it's called Science Up First, and maybe talk about how it 
it would uh, travel south and also into the public health space. Well, I, I really do hope it does travel travel south and, and travel around the world. What, it, what we're trying to do with Science Up First, hashtag Science Up First, is really create a movement. Uh, the, the goal is to use social media to get across the good stuff. And I know there are other people out there doing that. What we're trying to do is, is create partners, uh, collaborators all over the world. And just, just as you described, you know, scientists, epidemiologists, public health experts, influencers, uh, science communication experts, all to get across uh, the good, the good content. So we are, we are all, it's, we're trying to make it as simple as possible to join. So all you have to do is go to one of your favorite platforms and, and search science up first and start following and start sharing the good content. Uh, so that is one way of, 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 you know, sort of flooding social media with the good content. Uh, the other thing we're going to, we're trying to do, which you sort of alluded to there, is we're going to try to work with those communities uh, to co-create with those communities, right? To engage those communities, to have leaders from those communities as being part of our team. So in Canada, working with the Indigenous communities, really important. Uh, and so you could see how how we that would that would uh, could work in other in other jurisdictions too. And I also want to touch on Brian and I are very much in sync, by the way. So it's really a pleasure to be on this panel with them. But but I, I totally agree with Brian about these positive messaging. And that's the other thing we're trying to do with science at first. We're trying to even the imagery we're using, we're trying to use positive imagery. We don't want it to be the kind of imagery that invites polarization, you know, the kind of language that that invites confrontation. Um, and, and we are trying to celebrate stuff and, and celebrating the vaccine. I don't think we've done enough about that. This is like a moon landing kind of situation from a science perspective. This is like the, the real deal from a science perspective. We, the whole world should be celebrating. So that's the kind of messaging that we're, we're trying to get out. And, and the initial response has been amazing. And like the first three days, I think we had 30 million impressions. So uh, look, it's a, a drop in the bucket. Uh, but I, we hope that it's a drop that's needed and and one that can move the dial just a little bit. Well, I could I could stay here for another half hour or more listening to to both of you and and, and Wendy as well. But we need to bring this to a close. Uh, my great thanks to my guests, my excellent co-hosts, to all of you listening today, and to our producers Summer Brown, Faith Cullick, and Liz Voiles. For the next few weeks, we're going to be continued to broadcast here on Twitter, uh, typically every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Just go to at P-H-L-A-W-W-A-T-C-H or search COVID Law Briefings. Recordings are available on the Public Health Law Watch website uh, and the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twill.com. We'll see you next time. Please wear a mask, distance yourself, stay safe. As soon as possible, get vaccinated and improve your messaging. Thank you all.